Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. Well, welcome to our series, What's So Amazing About Grace? Today, I want to share something with you that isn't a sermon or a message. It's actually an impartation. It's an impartation because when I say what I'm going to say, every one of us have a picture in your mind of what it is. Tragically, for most of us, many of you like me have grown up with the wrong picture in your mind. What do you think of when you hear these words, the throne of God? Do happy feelings come to you? I'm just saying, I've seen funerals that look happier than what I just saw right now looking at this audience. For many of us, you grew up in a place where the throne of God was like something above the altar that was untouchable and that no one could become close. There wasn't warm and fuzzy feelings. As a matter of fact, I remember distinctly the first time I had my encounter with what I thought was the throne of God. It was B.C. Okay, let me help you. B.C. means before Christ. How many of you remember your B.C. days? Okay. How many of you partied so much you really don't remember much about your BC day? Okay. And, and, and I was under the influence of my two disciples, Cheech and Chong. And the reason you're laughing is because some of you were discipled by Cheech and Chong. Any disciple by Cheech and Chong here in the house? Not now, but in under previous... Come on. Thank God they didn't have... Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and phones that recorded everything you do. But, but I, I was actually with some of my older brother's friends. My older brother was at the time was a drug dealer, and he was a hero to me, and I always thought it was neat. He was five years older than me if I could ever be with him or his friends. And so we were at somebody's apartment, and we were under the influence of Cheech and Chong and a few other things. And I, I took, I don't, I do remember what I took. I won't tell you what I took, but, but along with my friend Cheech and Chong, and I, here's what I remember. I remember that I thought I was dying. Now, many of you have heard people say, I thought I was dying and my whole life flashed in front of my eyes. How many have ever had one of those experiences? You're literally, you just start seeing your life, highlights of your life, most of them the bad stuff. And and I, I, was, I, I, was, I was freaking out. And I, I, all I remember is I was before the throne of God and it was not good. I was, I was actually, the only words that would describe it would have been terrified, horrified. And the next thing that I remember, my brother's friends had me under the kitchen sink and my head was in water. They were throwing water on me and they were saying, Frank's little brother is ODing. Frank's little brother is ODing. And, and, and when, I, when I came to, I never forgot that moment. And it tended to match the picture of what I thought the throne of God was. Some of you grew up in a very rigid, strict religious background, 
and, and when you went even thinking about things like the throne of God, you, you thought of things like having to go to confession. Many of you were raised in parochial schools. How many of you were raised in a parochial school? And, and you went to confessions as a child. How many remember? Michelle, my wife, was raised in parochial schools all of her life until her last two years of high school. And, and she told me she remembers the first time she had to go to confession. And you were supposed to confess a sin. But she couldn't remember a sin that she had committed. So she lied. She lied to come up with a sin to confess. So I guess the next time she went to confession, she did have a sin. I lied the last time I was in confession. Well, what, what, what picture comes into your mind? Well, what, is, what does God look like? What does the throne room look like? What is his countenance like? What does it do to you? How do you feel? A.W. Tozer said, what comes into mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. Dr. Darius Daniels, one of our favorite preachers here at OSC, reminds us, and he did it so much better than I ever could. Many of you were here and heard him say it. You don't get the God you want, you get the God you see. And then he referenced how Jesus went to his hometown. And when he went to his hometown, people started saying, I mean, he's doing miracles everywhere, raising the dead, healing the sick, casting out demons, the blind are seeing, the lame are walking, the Cajun miracle. He's turning water into wine. And he gets to his hometown. And the Bible says he could not do many miracles there because of their unbelief, except that he healed a few people. Because here's what they said. Isn't that Mary's boy? Isn't that the carpenter's son? Didn't him and his daddy do your back porch? Didn't they do your cousin and him's roof? I thought they did your family's patio. And Dr. Darius said it so eloquently when he said, when you look at Jesus, if all you see is a carpenter, all you can get is your house fixed, your roof fixed, your porch fixed, or your garage fixed. But if you see a Savior, you can get your life fixed, your drug addict child delivered, your marriage restored, your body healed. Because you don't get the God you want, you get the God you see. Why is this so significant? Why is this so significant? Because the enemy's design, the enemy only has a handful of tools in his tool chest. Do you know that? People think that the devil's always inventing new things. No, he's not. The devil only has three tools and he's been using them since the garden, but he uses them so well that they still work for people who've been tripping into them every time like they're just seeing them for the first time. Well, what are those things? Remember when Adam and Eve were in the garden? The only two perfect people ever in a perfect place. The world's been fallen ever since. Everybody's been fallen ever since. But the only two ever perfect people were there in the garden. It was perfect. And the devil showed up. And what did he do? He lied about the character of God. Why don't you eat of this tree? Well, I, I was told not to eat of this tree. Why? 
God knows in the day you touch or eat of the tree, you're going to be like him. That's not what God wants. If God didn't want us to be like him, he never would have created us in his image. And two perfect people in a perfect environment having everything they would want were lied to by the enemy who has three very simple tools. They're simple. What are they? Lying, deceiving, and accusing. Those are actually the titles the Bible gives him. He is a liar, he is a deceiver, and he is an accuser. Why is that so significant, pastor? Because man has been hiding and running from God since the Garden of Eden when they were covering themselves in fig leaves all the way to the prodigal's pig pen. When he ran from God, who as Jesus told the story in Luke 15, the father there was God himself. The devil is a liar and a deceiver and accuser, and these are the tools of his trade to battle against all of humanity. So I have a question. What has he told you about God and the throne of God where God sits? Your view of God on the throne is either divine because it's based on the word of God or it's demonic because it's based on the liar, the deceiver, and the accuser. And it's not demonic because it's evil. It's demonic because it's distorted and a lie. A lie. Your view of God will keep you hiding from God when you sin or running to God like the prodigal when he finally came to himself in the pig pen and said, how many of the servants in my daddy's house have it better than I have leading my own life by myself. And he began to run home. And when his father saw him finally from the distance, when he saw him coming, he didn't have to run home because at that point, his father started running to him. See, that's the real God. That's the real God on the throne. John 1.17 says this, for the law was given through Moses, the law, thou shalt not. If you break these laws, you die. But grace and came through who? Came through Jesus Christ. I told you in a previous message, the word grace was used 131 times in the Bible, 124 times in the New Testament, and 86 times in the writing of Paul. It is under Moses' law. Don't steal, don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't bear false witness. Don't lie. It's under those that the punishment of those things is death. But grace and truth came through who? Who? So here is a question I want you to think about just a moment. How did man deal with sin under the law? How how were you ever forgiven under law? the law. Well, we don't have to question. We can actually go to the word of God and it tells us. Do do you know what God's people did when they sinned? They would take and they would sacrifice an animal. They would sacrifice an animal and they would bring that animal to the temple and there in the temple, the priest would take that animal and he would go and sacrifice it before the Lord. Now, it started with a tent 
when the children of Israel were in the wilderness, but then Solomon built the temple and it became the temple of God. And there in the temple was the ark. And in the ark was two places. There was the outer court. That's where they would come and they would bring them animals and they would take and they would sacrifice them. The priests, they had priests. That was their full-time job, praying for the people, ministering to the people and sacrificing animals. But once a year, they would go into a place that was the holiest of all, and that's where the presence of God lived on earth. What was the name of that place? The Holy of Holies. What day would they go there? Yom Kippur. The Hebrews call it, the Jews, or the Day of Atonement. And the high priest that year would go in, And he was wearing a robe, and on the robe was a bunch of bells. Some scholars say that he had a rope tied around his leg because he went in bearing his sin and the sin of all the people. And the first thing that he would do is he would sacrifice a bull for his sin, and then he would sacrifice a lamb for the sins of all the people. And there was a seat there called the mercy seat. And he would go and he would sprinkle the blood of that lamb over the mercy seat, asking God for mercy for the people. He did that once a year, first sacrificing for his sin, a bull, then for the sins of the people, a lamb. But do you know what happened if they heard the bell stop moving? And I don't know if the first guy that went in there was always as holy as he should have been, but the second guy was. And he would go one time a year and get this. And it didn't forgive their sins. It simply covered their sins. That represented the closest thing to the throne of God on earth. Let me ask you a question. When that high priest went in there to sacrifice one time a year where the presence of God was, do you think he was scared? Oh, yeah. Matter of fact, in the Old Testament, before they built the temple, the priests would carry the ark. And a couple of times, there were people that it started to stumble, and they reached their hand in the ark into the Holy of Holies. And do you know what happened? They were struck dead. Because unholy man can't commune with holy God and live. Y'all look very excited today. It looks like I'm preaching a message on encouragement. Everybody sitting there going. Let me, before I get into the story today and tell you, we're going to read it. Remember, they would sin. You'd come and you'd bring your animal sacrifice to the priest. He would take it to the outer court. And then once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, to the mercy seat. Now, that that is the way that it was always done until John 1, 17. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and came through Jesus Christ. Now watch this. Hebrews 10, 11 Here's how man dealt with his sin before Jesus died on the cross. For every priest still serves ritual offerings, the same sacrifices again and again, sacrifices that can never take away sin. 
But when this priest, speaking of Jesus, had offered one supreme sacrifice for sin for all times, he sat down on a, at the right hand of, now watch this, this is so good. This is really good. First John says we have an advocate with the Father. Say advocate. You know what the word in Spanish is for attorney? What is it? Advocado. Your advocate, your attorney. You know where your attorney is right now? He's at the right hand of the Father. So when you go, he steps up and goes, Father, I'm representing Chimica. I'm representing T-Boy. So he goes on to say, but when this high priest had offered one supreme sacrifice for sin for all time, he sat down on the throne at the right hand of God, waiting until his whispering enemies were subdued and turned into his footstool. And by one perfect, he has made us. He's made who perfectly holy? He's made who perfectly holy? Say that, I'm perfectly holy. You say, but pastor, you don't know what's in mind. That is who you are positionally because God sees you. He sees you through the love of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus. Perfectly holy and complete for all time. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid for your sin, past, present, and future. The Holy Spirit confirms this by scripture. For the Lord says afterwards, I will give them this covenant. I will embed my laws on their, not on 10 commandments, on their heart. I will fasten my word in their, in their thoughts. And then he says, I will not, not again remember their sins and lawless deeds. I will not again remember their sins and lawless deeds. I will not again, God who knows everything, who knows what you wanted to do, what you thought about doing, what he kept you from doing, what you've never told your wife, your husband, your children, your best friend, your sins and lawless deeds, they will never be remembered again. Well, my husband reminds me, well, let me tell you something. Guess who's, guess who's using him to remind you? Five people in jail just started shaking the sails. So if our sins have been forgiven and forgotten, why would we ever need another sacrifice for sin? What does that mean? You don't have to go and light a candle. What does that mean? You don't have to give money to find forgiveness. What does that mean? You don't have to go and pay penance. Your penance was paid on the cross. And the final thing that Jesus said when he died on the cross is, it is finished. It's all been paid. You can't pay anymore. And now we are brothers and sisters in God's family because of the blood of Jesus. And he welcomes us to come into the most holy sanctuary of the heavenly realm. How? Boldly and without? For he has dedicated a new and life-giving way for us to approach God. For just as the veil was torn in two. Let me explain this. Okay, so there was the outer court where the priests were. There was the inner court. There was the Holy of Holies. And what separated the Holy of Holies and the temple from everything else was a 60 to 90 foot curtain that was two inches thick that they would go through one time a year. But do you know what happened when Jesus died on the cross? There was an earthquake 
And that entire thing in the temple was, God ripped it in two because he said, no longer will I live with a temple made with man's hands, but you will become the temple of the Holy Spirit. For just as the veil was torn in two, Jesus' body was torn open to give us free and fresh access to him. And since we have a magnificent high priest to welcome us into God's house, we come closer to God and approach him with an open heart, fully convinced that nothing can keep us at a distance from him. For our hearts have been with the blood to remove impurity, and we have been freed from the accusing conscience. Who's the accuser? Who's the accuser? We've been freed from him, and now we are clean and unstained and presentable to God inside and out. Okay. There's positional. That's who God sees me. When he sees me, he sees Jesus. And there's practical. I'm working out my sanctification. I'm getting my stuff together a little bit at a time as God works in me. Because if he changed me all at one time, I couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle it. In Hebrews 4, the writer of Hebrews says it like this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to understand and and have shared feelings with our weaknesses and, and to every assault of who's the tempter? The devil is. He, he understands. Watch this. But one who has been tempted in every respect just as we are, but he didn't sin. Because of this, let us fearlessly and and boldly draw near to the throne of God is now the throne of grace. The throne of God's unmerited favor for us sinners that we may receive mercy for our failures, not when we do good, not with our successes, and that we find grace to help in a good time for every need, an appropriate and well-timed help coming just when you and I need it. The author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is our high priest in three things he wants you to know. Number one, he understands. He understands. Look right here. For the last 48 years, I've been sitting across from people who have been telling me the issues of their life. And how many of you know that when you sin, that the sooner you stop it, the sooner you stop pain to God, you, and everybody else that loves you. If you can stop it when it's a thought, it doesn't become a deed. If you can stop it when you start it as a deed, it doesn't multiply. Someone said, if you plant a thought, you reap a deed. If you plant a deed, you reap a habit. If you plant a habit, you reap a lifestyle. If you plant a lifestyle, you reap a destiny. Heaven or hell, life or death, good or bad. So the sooner that you stop it. So the enemy's plan is when you sin to get you to do what Adam and Eve did, hide. Hide. So when I talk to people and I say, well, why did you keep doing this? And here's what they always say. I 
I shouldn't tell anyone. Why? They, 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 wouldn't, they wouldn't understand. I want to say something to every man here. Look right here. You're not the only man that's ever struggled with lust. No temptation is uncommon to man. You show me a man that says he's never struggled with lust, and I'll show you somebody that has a lust and a lying problem. <laughs> you show me a woman that's never struggled with insecurity, and I'll show you a woman that's insecure and a liar. All of us fall into sin. We just fall into different sin. Let me explain that. All of us have a flesh pattern. How many of you, everybody in your family drinks? Come on, everybody, everybody, as far as you can remember. I mean, you, some people here think you can't drink crawfish unless you wash it down with something with alcohol in it. It'll just stick here and kill you. I mean, you have cages saying, Pastor, I, just, uh, I can't go to a crawfish boil. I mean, the only thing that could wash it down is a Miller Lite. Like one time I didn't drink a Miller Lite and I threw up all night. Think of all the times you drank a lot of Miller Lights that threw up all night. You don't remember those. But the enemy's design is to keep you ashamed and hiding so that you continue sinning. That's his power. Condemning you, shaming you, guilting you, accusing you about you and about God. That's where his power is. And so now... Jesus says, I understand. I I know what it is to be tempted by lust. The reason he became flesh was not just to pay the price for our sin, but to pay the price of the temptation that you and I would know. He understands. Joseph preached a funeral, his first funeral this week, for a 24-year-old boy who was tragically killed driving home uh, from work in Texas. Six years ago, That boy's father took his life. And all that's left is one brother and a mama. We were talking about the funeral and I said, baby, there are very few people that can say what you can say. You can look at that brother and you can say, I understand. Because his brother was run over when he was on a motorcycle on Collie Saloon Street six years ago, 20 years old. He knows. He understands. Look at me. Jesus became a man so that he could look at you and tell you, I understand. I understand. Here's the second thing it says is he sympathizes with you. He doesn't look at you and go, you idiot. You know, he looks at you and says, I almost did that too. That was hard for me. He became a man so that he could identify with what you walk through. He understands. He sympathizes. It says he has shared feelings. He felt that way too. He felt that way too. And it says he's that way with our weakness, our infirmities, and our liabilities. With our weakness. All of us have weaknesses. Can I tell you what your greatest strength is? Knowing your greatest weakness. Knowing your greatest weakness. Some of you go, Pastor, you know, I was a drinker. L- listen to me. Jesus drank wine, didn't he? 
Okay, I come from the tribe of one is too many and a hundred's not enough. That's every Mexican in my family back to Mexico. There wasn't no dos X's. There was like four X's, 10 X's, a hundred X's. The X's just kept rolling. They could have never been in that. I don't drink often, but when it was like, I drink often and it's always X's. Ex-wives, ex-friends, ex-girlfriends, ex a lot of exes. Knowing your greatest strength, knowing your greatest weakness is your greatest strength. Look, look, look at me. A lot of you, if you understood your greatest weakness, it would spare you from 90% of the temptation you keep falling into. Some of you, if you struggle with lust, delete social media. Delete social media. You don't, you don't need to look at porn. All you got to do is look at social media. You say, Pastor, how do you know that? I've been listening to y'all confess for 40 years. <laughs> that's not true. <laughs> I mean, that is true, but that's not the only reason why. I'm a hot-blooded Latino. How do you think? Our weaknesses, our infirmities, and with our liabilities, he understands the weaknesses of your flesh pattern. That's why he brings godly people into your life. That's why he brings freedom groups for you to be a part of. That's why he brings other people like men's Bible studies for you to have accountability and relationships to disciple you and help you. That's why. He goes on to tell us that because our high priest understands, we can approach the throne of grace. Remember what I told you that grace was? G-R-A-C-E. What does it stand for? God's riches at Christ's expense. Come on, say it again. God's riches at Christ's expense. You know what that means? You know what it means? Many of you know my son Joseph who's here with us. He invites me everywhere. I'm like, I'm so blessed. Every time he goes out to eat, I get invited. Daddy, let's go to Florida. Daddy, let's go on a fishing trip. I'm like, I'm so special. And then we get to the counter. (laughs) Pastor Kelly, I'm sure African-American children aren't this way. They're just Mexican kids. But guess he knows that daddy's coming. What's daddy going to do? Daddy's going to pay. You and I are operating on the grace credit card of Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. And he paid for it before you ever get there. So we can approach in three ways the high priest never could. We can do what he never could. Remember when he went in there with those bells around and a rope tied around his leg sacrificing first for his sin. He went in there terrified. He went in there examining himself, knowing every day, this is the day I'm going to be going. And in 300 days, I'm going to be. In 200 days, I'm going to be there. In 100 days, in a week, I'm going to be. He was examining. He was terrified. The same way many of us have looked at the throne of God all of our life. But because he became our high priest, we get to do what they couldn't do. Number one, we can approach this by the scripture tells us fearlessly because I have favor. Fearlessly because I have favor. First John four eighteen says, love never brings 
Love never brings fear. If you're in a relationship that's ruled by fear, it's not love. Fear equals control. Fear equals control. Controlling people are living in fear. Don't point to him. Just look right here at me. I love what it goes on to say, but love's perfection drives the fear of punishment far from our hearts. The New King James says, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Look, right here. Fear casts us out from the presence of God. But you know what Jesus did? Jesus came and cast out the very thing that tries to cast us out. Secondly, we can go confidently. Confidently. Because there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. What does that mean? Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 1, the Passion Translation says this, Now the case is closed. There remains no accusing voice of... Who's, who's the accuser? Who's the one that condemns us? There remains no more accusing voice of condemnation against those who are joined in life union, life union with Jesus, the anointed. Well, you know what that means? Guilt, gone because of the blood of Jesus. Fear, gone because of perfect love. Shame, gone because he shed his blood on the cross and said, it's finished. And third and finally, he says, we can come boldly. Not, not afraid like that priest did, not with, the, not with bells on and a rope around his leg, but we can go boldly, boldly into the throne of grace. Ephesians 1, 5 says, for it was always in his perfect plan to adopt us as his delightful children through our union with Jesus, the anointed one, so that his tremendous love, that same love that cascades us, would glorify. Now let's read this together. For the same love that he has for Jesus, he has for me. The same love he has for Jesus, he has for me. The same love he has for Jesus, he has for me. Say it with me. The same love he has for Jesus, he has for me. Say it again. The same love he has for Jesus. There is nothing I can do to make him love me more. There's nothing I can do to make him love me less. Because the same love that he has for his beloved Jesus, that same love he has for me. And he goes on to say this. So that his tremendous love cascades over us glorious, for his glorious grace, for the same love that he has for his beloved, he has for us. And this unfolding plan brings him great pleasure. Since we now are joined to Christ, we have been given the treasures of redemption by his blood. Read it with me. The total cancellation of all because of the cascading riches of his grace. Hebrews 4, 16 says it. Like this, the Passion Translation. Let's read this. So now we draw freely and where love is what? He's not calling it love, God anymore because God is love. He's saying love is enthroned. Love is enthroned. Not the law, but love is enthroned. To receive mercy's kiss and discover the grace we urgently need to strengthen us 
in our time of weakness. Look at me. Men, look up here, every married man. You ever been afraid of a kiss? Have you ever been afraid of a kiss? When we go to the throne of God, it is now the throne of grace, and we there embrace mercy's kiss. Why? Because the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. Now, can I share something really, really, really personal with you in this last two minutes? I don't want to air out my laundry right here for folks who don't want to hear it. Can I share something really personal with you? In my mind, I have a picture of what the throne of God looks like. It's actually one I pray every day. Every day, multiple times a day, I will pray and then Michelle and I pray at night. And here's the same prayer. God, cover Jacob, Amy, Lily, Christian, Alex, Eli, Finley, Kate, baby Shiloh, Joseph, Rochelle, John Wesley, Wesley, who's in your arms, Haddon and Amberly Grace. Cover them in your blood. Surround them with your divine protection. And when I say, and Wesley, who's in your arms, I, I carry a picture with me in my Bible. Because this is the picture I get. I want to share it with you. That's Wesley Ravenhill. But the arms that he's embraced by are not mine. They're mercy's kiss and the throne of grace in the arms of God. Those are the arms we run to, not I from. Those are the ones that remove sin and shame and replace it with cleansing and forgiveness and righteousness. Those are the arms that remove condemnation and accusation and give us peace and joy and love. Will you bow your head with me? Heavenly Father, thank you today for the throne of grace. The throne of grace. Thank you, Jesus, that you, our high priest, our high priest, our high priest, gave your life as the sacrifice lamb of God without stain or without blemish so there would never have to be another sacrifice made to cover sin. But you did it once and for all. To remove the tools the enemies used on us all of our lives. Fear, guilt, and shame. And he's done it through accusation and lying and deceiving. I want everyone here, I want you just to say this very quietly with me. Lord Jesus, thank you that you're my advocate that the throne of God 
is the throne of grace. Where I receive mercy's kiss. Thank you, Jesus. That you took what I deserve so I could receive what you deserve. And now with every head bowed, every eye closed, I want to ask you the most important question of your life. Jesus said, unless a man or woman was born again, they wouldn't see the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, unless a man or woman was born again, they wouldn't enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then he said, don't be surprised that I tell you, you must be born again. My birthday's June the 17th, but my spiritual birthday's the week before Easter. When I prayed with an African-American counselor in a junior high school, that day I was born again. The old Jacob died. The new one was raised from the dead. Not long after that, I was baptized to show the old Jacob was dead, washed away, and a new one had been raised from the dead, the newness of life. Have you been born again? You say, Pastor, I've been christened, I've been baptized, I've joined the church. Isn't that good enough? That's a great start, but that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, you must be born again. It only happens once, just like the day you were born. You say, Pastor, how can I do that? That's what I want to do. It's as easy as ABC. A, admit that you're a sinner. B, believe that Jesus Christ became your sin bearer and he died for your sin so you would not have to die with your sin. Someone will die for your sin. Either he did or you will. And see, confess Christ as your Lord and Savior as you turn away from sin to be born again. So if you're here and you say, Pastor, I believe in God and I believe in Jesus, but I've never prayed to be born again. Today, I want to surrender to Jesus. Today, I want to turn away from sin and be born again. If that's you, on the count of three, I'm going to just ask you to raise your hand high just so I can pray for you right where you are. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm just going to pray for you right there at your seat, right where you are. One, God brought you here. Nothing's an accident. Two, every circumstance in your life has led you to this moment. God has been pursuing you and waiting for you while you've been hiding and running. And now's your time to surrender, to be born again, to know him. Three, if that's you, lift your hand high. Lift it high. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Anywhere else? Eight, nine. Anywhere else? Okay. You can put your hands down. Last 10 seconds. Pastor, I didn't raise my hand with these nine, but I should have. My heart's about to beat out of my chest. I know this is what I need. I know that you are preaching straight to me. I know this is for me. I didn't raise my hand, but I should have. So if you didn't raise your hand, but you should have, I want you to raise it and wave it at me right now. I'm asking this last time for you. Join these nine. Wave it at me. Wave it at me. Ten. Anywhere else? Wave it at me. Eleven. Okay. Now, church, let's join all of those that raise their hand to be born again. Let's join them in this prayer for them to be born again. Let's pray out loud together. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you're the son of God. I believe that on the cross, you took my guilt, my sin, and my shame, and you died for it. I believe you faced hell for me so I would not have to go. And you rose from the dead to give me a place in heaven, 
a purpose on earth and a relationship with your Father. Today, Lord Jesus, I turn away from sin to be born again. Today, God is my Father, Jesus is my Savior, and I'm born again in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.